This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. All right, everybody. Hello, friends. Uh, This is Jared Fishman here, host of the 20-Sided Gamified podcast. I know I always say this, but this is a particularly exciting episode. This is the first time that I've got um, more than one guest on at the same time. So we'll have to see how that works out. Hopefully, we don't all yell at each other. So we'll see. Um, I'm recovering from watching many episodes of Alone last night. So if you've ever seen that show, it's a very fun show. But I will say, um, not necessarily to reveal my political affiliations, but it, there is something to be said about people who willingly go on a show and then cry about having to quote unquote kill squirrels and watch their existential crisis about those things. It seems very odd to me. Um, needless to say, I turned it off at some point or another and then watched uh, the new Godzilla movie, which was great. But all of that stuff aside, um, Okay, so here's how these two guests came on. So Steve O'Rourke uh, from WCC, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, is a good friend of one of my friends, Scott Petorti, who also works at that institution. He was talking up a game that I had heard a lot about anyway because of the fact that I am a teacher. Um, it's a game called Votes for Women. And it's one of those games that, well, I'll say two things, right? One, um, it is widely being talked about, which is always a good thing. And the other side of the coin, it's really good. It's a really, really good game. Um, In fact, maybe I'll use the word great. Um, So it also turned out that as we were talking about that, um, Steve had already had conversations with both Tori and Kevin, who I'm in a more in a sophisticated way introduce in a second. But that's really the genesis of all of this. Um, So I reached out to Kevin and Tori. They were both interested in coming on. So the more sophisticated introduction. So we've got two individuals here, right? So we've got uh, Kevin Bertram, who's the founder and CEO of a gaming company called Fort Circle Games. Um, He also has designed a game called The Shores of Tripoli and a game that's going to be coming out called The Halls of Montezuma. And then we also have Tori Brown, whose game was published through that company. And her game, I've already talked it up a little bit, uh, is a game called Votes for Women, which is about the suffrage movement. So again, for me, um, as a teacher, it just immediately sent uh, bells ringing. So that was super long-winded. Hello, Tori. And hello, Kevin. Hello, Jared. Hi. Howdy. Hi, Kevin. So it's uh, really cool that you guys came on. And like I said, hopefully you weren't too bored listening to the uh, my my rambling about the show alone. Um, so, Tori, why don't we start with you? Um, I love starting with, I don't know, just a little origin story. So where are you from? How'd you get into games? Sure. Well, I was born in San Diego. Uh, both my dad and stepdad were in the military stationed at Miramar. And at some point, my stepdad got out of the Navy when they uh, moved Miramar or when they made it into a Marine Corps base. Anyway, 
Uh, we moved to rural Kansas when I was 12 years old, which was a little bit of a experience. Um, and then when I was 16, I moved to Northern Virginia where my dad and stepmom and family were living. So I have hop, skipped and jumped from um, West Coast to uh, the Midwest to now the, the Mid-Atlantic. And I have been in the Washington, D.C. area since um, 1999, which now sounds like a long time ago. Um <laughs> I got into gaming, I think like most people get into gaming, you know, like we had copies of Life and we were a big Trivial Pursuit family. Um, so, you know, that kind of you know, very Milton Bradley's or Parker Brothers kind of games. Um, I got into hobby gaming uh, probably just before the pandemic. I got a copy of Watergate from my fabulous local game store, Labyrinth in Washington, D.C. And you know, it's a two-player game, so me and my husband could play it alone because that's all you got to do during the pandemic. And um, and it was it changed how I thought about board games. It made me think about sort of narrative storytelling and playing the bad guy, and just like how much fun you could have with history. Um, and then. Um, at the same time, a friend of mine named Kevin Bertram had started up a game company and he'd published, or I think he'd finished the Kickstarter on his first game, Shores of Tripoli, and was asking everybody we knew what we thought would be a great game uh, title. He was committed to this historical gaming. He was committed to war games on underappreciated topics. And I read a story about the coming centennial of the 19th Amendment and what I knew about the suffrage movement. Um, I was a women's studies minor and had been involved in the women's movement and different movement politics in Washington um, made me just like know instantly that that would make a pretty rad game. So I said to Kevin, I've got your next game. You should do a, You should do a game on the 19th Amendment. And he says, that sounds great you should do a game on the 19th amendment. <laughs> right. Um, and so that, and so from there, like, you know, from, from gaming to designer origin story, you know, sort of off to the races. Right. And here's what's really wild to me, right? This is your first game. It is. Yeah. Is that amazing? It's yes, actually <laughs> it is. It's, it really is amazing. Not to say that it's not surprising per se, but like, it's really what I'm trying to say is it's, it's, it's a compliment. Like it's pretty amazing to design such a well-received great game as your first sort of, you know, coming out party, so to speak. So kudos to you, Tori. Well, thank you very much. And I did not sit alone in a room for too long. Um, Kevin was not just my publisher, but also my developer. So we talked okay. through pieces and, you know, he gave me a copy of 1960 making of a president, which if you've played before has really similar mechanics. I think, you know, mine as, you know, sort of, I, you know, I played a lot of Carcassonne and Ticket to Ride, right? Kind of a normie yeah. gamer before Watergate. Um, it, you know, thinking through these sort of different pieces, you know, as Kevin and I would be brainstorming, you know, I was doing all of this research and starting to put these cards together, looking at the different sort of artwork and how the mechanics would play, we would you know, sort of go back and forth. And so, you know, I also am really lucky to live in Washington, D.C., where there are some phenomenal game designers. And so mm -hmm. Jason Matthews was a senior um, play tester and helped, you know, sort of think through a lot of these pieces with me. So, you know, um, no, no man is an island and no game mm -hmm. designer does it by themselves. Sure. Um, I you know, had the benefit of some really smart and interesting people to help me along the way. That's awesome. So I do think we should probably loop Kevin in now. Now, by the way, because I am Kevin in a moment going to ask for your origin story as well, but rumor has it, it's kind of a cool story with how you two met. So, Kevin, I'm going to let you sort of roll with that um, in terms of 
<laughs> getting the audience to to hear a little bit about these shenanigans. But again, like we've got to be appropriate. Sure. <laughs> so um, go for it, Kevin. So in 2000, I was a 29 year old returning student because I went to the University of Arizona, thought I'd graduated. It turns out I was missing two classes. I didn't learn this until like two years later. So I needed to take a couple of classes to finish up my degree. And so I went to George Mason, which was the local university. And I decided to join the debate team, which I had done previously in my past. And so I was a 29-year-old uh, debater. And one of my partners that year was a 17-year-old freshman, Tori Brown. And so we were college debate partners which, you know, maybe 12 years difference, not quite old enough to be her father, but certainly an older, older, older brother. Uh, right. And it was awesome. Like, sometimes you just meet people who are cool and you want to keep them in your life forever. And uh, I think about Tori that way. So Very yeah. cool. So what kind of debate? Parley debate or? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> no, I know. No. I, I am asked next. Remember, I'm a school teacher. So it's like I have an intimate uh, knowledge of the uh, model UN slash debate community. So I promise it'll be the only question about this. About no, no, we we do real, we did real debate. So, um, <laughs> Harley, mm-hmm. yeah. So we did a policy, policy debate. debate. Yeah, got it. Which uh, is called NDTC at the college level. So. Okay, gotcha. Very cool. How'd you guys do? Did you do well? <laughs> we we're okay. Yeah, there was one counter plan round where um, Kevin forgot to say perm me. do both. And, uh, Don't even start, sorry. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is definitely a very interesting origin story. Now, Kevin, for you, um, when did you specifically get into games? Is this something that you've always done or is it something more later in life? No, so from a very early age, I was playing games. Like, you know, I didn't play Candyland with my father. We were playing Feudal. Uh, which is a kind of chess-like game when I was five or six. You know, I was playing Risk at seven or eight, which is, you know, fairly young to be playing those kind of games. And then Axis and Allies came out when I was like 11 or 12. And then I migrated over into Avalon Hill games when I was still in high school. And so I always played games. But, you know, something that happened in the industry is games started getting long you know, war games in particular started getting longer and longer and longer and longer and you know you go to college and then you start a career and then you start fit in it and so i certainly i wouldn't say i fell away from games but the only games i was really playing was uh you know carcassonne ticket to ride things like that with my in-laws and my wife scrabble you guys played a lot yeah, of scrabble. scrabble played mm-hmm. a lot of scrabble and uh I met up with Jason Matthews, who also a former college debate, real college debater. Uh, and when he was designing 1960 and uh, it kind of brought me back into the more interesting side of the hobby. And there's a lot of great things. I mean, I could talk your ear off. I probably don't want to waste your time. So much, but like there's a renaissance going on in gaming. And I think, I think Twilight, you know, Settlers of Catan was part of that in 95 that kind of had Euro games becoming more interesting. I think Twilight Struggle was a big seminal moment for where historical games became interesting and accessible. And, you know, we think at the time we thought of that game as so accessible and short, but it's a three hour game that's pretty dense. And so that sort of that trend of games getting more interesting, more historical, but also a little more accessible, I think is certainly something that that we as a company definitely are, are trying to ride that wave. So. Yeah, for sure. I love your word, um, the Renaissance, because you're right. I mean, and and I'll say it in a very unsophisticated way. Um, 
games are just really cool nowadays, right? Like both mechanically, the way they look, so aesthetically. And the fact is, is like I kind of I kind of always make the connection between the popularity of games to almost like something like um you know, uh, like George R. R. Martin's books, right? So again, like when those books first came out in the early 2000s, right? So when we're talking Game of Thrones here, it's like, you know, you had your fantasy nerds who really liked that stuff. And then 10 years later, a show comes out and all of a sudden everybody does it. Again, I don't know if it's the most apt comparison, but that's what I think of when I think of, you know, where games are nowadays. It's just that, I don't know, normalized is probably not the right word. It's just I just find more people are playing and and we're not just talking about games, you know, out of the local target. We're talking about games like Catan or one of my new favorites is uh, Dune Imperium. Love which, that game. Oh my God. It's like, I am obsessed with that game right now. Like there was one night where we played it and I literally couldn't go to sleep because I was thinking about like, you know, the, how the game went and how to do better next time, which, you know, I don't know what that says about me, but. So during the pandemic, before the Rise of Vix expansion came out, my wife played that two-player with the House of Gaul, you know, as the third-party player, uh, over 550 times. Since Rise of Vixes came out, we started tracking our games, and we've played it well over 150 times. So well over 700 times we've played Dune Imperium. So clearly that game has some staying power. <laughs> yes, indeed. So. Um, so oh, I actually wanted oh, no, to... Oh, no, go ahead, play. yeah. So I, I think, you know, part of this renaissance is something that we overlook. It's so easy to overlook because we just take the technology for uh, granted is that things like desktop publishing, digital images, things like that really changed and it made game design more accessible because, you know, games in the 80s all looked like trash because that's what the tools that people had to design with. you like... I couldn't have made a game like The Shores of Triple, at least not being as good looking as it was in 1985 or even 1995. And I, I think the same is probably true with Votes for Women, where it would have taken incredible amounts of, of money and effort to do. And so, you know, I think that I think it's kind of an overlooked uh, little segment of how really rapid technology changes really made game design a much easier, better process. So. Yeah, it's kind of what people want today. You know, I mean, if if you think about some of the grizzled, you know, squad leader or advanced squad leader players back in the day, I don't know how much they cared about, like, what the game looked like, right? Whereas now, I think, you know, again, with games becoming more mainstream, like, aesthetics do matter, you know? And there is something to be said about, I don't know, just, like, getting a nice pretty sort of aesthetically pleasing game, you know, with little inserts to put all of your, you know, different, you know, counters or, you know, things that you need to play. And again, I know how lame that sounds on some level, but, you know, I, I think it's, I think, uh, you know, the more of that that you have, the more marketable your game is, at least, you know, from, from a layman's perspective. When I bought Puerto Rico and I don't know what, when that was, 98 maybe, it sat on my shelf for two years because it was so ugly. Like, I just didn't want to learn this game because this game is an ugly game. Uh, but yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, think, totally, I'm totally monopolizing. Oh, no, 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 no. It's look, I'm a miniatures <laughs> player primarily that and that and role playing games. So again, like, you know, you sit down at a, at a miniatures game in which all the minis are painted and the table looks beautiful, even if it's a trash game or even if the GM is not very good, you're going to want to play it. You know, which I don't know. I don't know what that says about like the expert game master who might not have, you know, uh, access or have like really nice stuff. I don't know what that says there. You know, if somebody wouldn't want to play that game, right? Or you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's a little, little, little bit of a conundrum. But 
Um, I do think the rise yeah, of like, um, you know, certainly social media, I think has like countervailing forces on board gaming when they're like, we're online all the time. And like some just like want to like sit at a table and like see eye, eye contact and right. Like, so this way that people are taking their fun sort of offline, I think has had like a huge impact. But I also see the sort of piece of like community built online around gaming, whether that's Board Game Geek in those forums, Twitter. I mean, Instagram, the way that these, Insta, you know, these sort of influencers make it easier to find games because they're you know, getting them sent free to them all the time. And they will tell you, if you like this game, then try that game and look how pretty this one is. Right. The way that, um, you know, board game you know, communities are, you know, sort of um, feeding and pulling you toward a table and then pulling you back to your phone. I think is super fascinating. And I think can't be, you know, it helps, I think, feed the hobby, bring new people in. And then, you know, you can make more in different interesting games because there's more interesting different players coming and, and buying games. Yeah, for sure. And on that note, by the way, um, Tori, I, I think we absolutely have to talk about your game. Oh, <laughs> we okay. have to. All right. Let's- so... So Tori, let's let's think about where to start here because again, um, I also don't want to ramble per se. But so okay, so you get the idea, right? You go to Kevin, you go to some other folks, you say this is this is this is an idea I have for a game. Can you walk me through maybe the process of what it looked like as you were taking this idea and bringing it to a place of fruition? Sure. So you know, um, the 19th Amendment. It's been a hundred years. It had been 100 years uh, since that had happened. The movement itself, 70 years of history, uh, you know, at least, right, if you start in 1848 Seneca Falls and you get to 1920 ratification, uh, those are pretty momentous years in American history, given the Civil War, given the rise of industrialization, given, um, you know, the Great War in Europe. Uh, it's just like a lot of content, right? And so a piece of advice that Kevin gave me as I started my research, and it's definitely this game started in research before mechanics even became a thing, um, was to start on Wikipedia, not to end on Wikipedia, not to like only you, right? But that the key moments, the real tent poles of seven decades of history will be there and to sort of start there and then branch outward. And so that was really helpful. And so I pulled, you know, all of this was happening online during the pandemic. And so, um, you know, I got myself a Dropbox and uh, some uh, Google Sheets because I don't pay for Word and Windows. Um, And so uh, creating a a spreadsheet, one tab said support, one tab said oppose. And before I knew it, I was creating independent decks. And it was just sort of how I saw the research being organized. And so there would be, you know, a title, there would be... um, sort of a a period of history or a year that that happened in, there was, you know, I was always thinking about how art would match. And to be clear, like this, the artwork from the the history is amazing. You go from 1848, really the sort of start of political cartoons and broadsides to flyers, to artwork, to real just beautiful art deco pieces. Um, so always thinking like visually, how does this tell the story about what I want to sort of you know drive the narrative in the game? So the two decks sort of create themselves. And I think, you know, 1960 was instructive. You know, it's a game about the Electoral College. 
which is garbage. But the constitutional amendment process in Article 5 is much more straightforward, right? One state for one, you know, one state legislature to one vote. So that as like Article 5 as victory conditions became a clear sort of guidepost on how the game would play out that you would need these states in order to sort of achieve victory. It's asymmetrical game because the event, the, the constitution is asymmetrical. You need three quarters of states to ratify or one quarter to oppose in order for opposition to win. And you need Congress to play some role. So I'm building out these decks. I've got this map of the United States, sans Alaska and Hawaii, because they just weren't states yet. We hadn't uh, done that work. And so, um, you know, how it proceeds then, right? Like I'm thinking about um, eras of the movement and they're pretty broadly defined. Um, and that becomes eras of the deck, right? So we have early, middle and late. I think there had originally been like discrete year periods on the cards, but that like things just get a little fuzzy. And so early, middle, late helped us sort of, um, you know, cross the, um, you know, it, made things and um, understandable and flow according to history. You and you, uh, when you play the game, you separate out those those sections of the deck, shuffle them, and then build that back deck back together. So you don't get war in Europe before you get the Civil War, but you do get sometimes reconstruction before the Civil War. And I was like, oh, I don't. I don't know. Does that feel okay? And, you know, eventually it came to this, you know, that like playability mattered more than strict fidelity to a chronological sequence of events, that that wasn't fun to just like, and then this happened and then this happened and this happened. Right. And that maybe reconstruction sparks the civil war and maybe right. Sort of the, a history and sort of creative thinking therein. the, um, Congressional track was one of the like last, uh, you know, sort of towards the end pieces. Um, and, you know, there's a proper role for Congress in a constitutional amendment. And that became the mechanism by which we could move from a sort of um, territorial control game where you'd been with your cards, you know, placing cubes in the states and sort of building that power influence, if you will. And once Congress sort of passes the amendment, I did air quotes on a podcast, I got to try not to do that. Um, then it became um, the sort of ratification process, right? Congress has passed, it goes to the states, this happens in 1919 in history. But in the game, you know, as soon as you can get all six columns into the congressional track, you can then, um, you know, start that voting process in the state houses. And that mechanic required me to go back and do additional research because the opposition deck needed more power and control over what was happening in Congress. And so um, I got to go through, super fun, the congressional record and identify these various senators and their testimony or their speeches in the well of the, the American Senate for just the awfulest, most transgressive, most like trenchant um, pieces of like, I will never vote for these women to do these things. Um, but, you know, lot most of the game, like research is driving mechanics, the divide that happens and how the purple and yellow cubes represent these splits in the movement. Um, but in this case, the mechanic drove their research. And so finding these senators and like the crustiest looking pictures of these old dudes I could find, um, you know, it's just, it, just the, the sort of push and pull and the like, I think I'm done with research. Oh, nope. Okay. Well, this picture looks like the designer says this picture isn't going to work. Okay. I got to go back into the archives. What I already have, what do I go back to the library of Congress or what do I go into the States for? And so it really, you know, as we're building out these desks, decks, 
right? Being sort of never being content, always being willing to, oh, there's some cards that I just loved, but like didn't make sense overall. And, um, and so, you know, then we come into play testing, uh, Kevin wonderfully, you know, I think the greatest gift a publisher could ever give you is an amazing play test process. And so a thousand, no, not a thousand, a hundred, it felt like a thousand play test kits went out to folks who were deep gamers, who were not very, um, you know, adept at, you know, three hour war games to some women's history folks and said, play and fill out this Google form. And from that Google form, like, okay, now we got to go back and like shift some, some weight. And like, you know, it seems, I think the, the, um, the average win weight, win rate for suffrage was like 70%. Um, and so needing to reweight the um, opposition deck to give, you know, opposition a chance. It's not a game where, you know, suffrage is going to win every time and people have some feelings about that. Um, but the playtest process was, was huge in the balance. And I think ultimately in why the game has been success as successful as it has been, because the time and the effort um, to put that all together. And then I think the last piece was the oppo bot and the, um, you know, Kevin did, um, did you do a mil- did you do a million um, oppo bot solitaire games? It, to- it feels like it was a million. It was certainly <laughs> a large number. So it's just so hard. Like I couldn't, I just couldn't do all of those play tests, but Kevin did. And um, it seems like the plate, the oppo bot, I, I think we knew that there was going to be an oppo bot because people wanted to play solitaire, but it's become incredibly important for people who refuse to play opposition and that the opposite, the oppo bot deck allows you to play so solo or cooperatively. And that's been really important for people because, you know, despite how much fun it is to play Nixon and Watergate, not everybody wants to play anti-suffrage in Boots for Women. No, totally. That was actually going to be my question. Um, (laughs) So, you know, um, how many people can play? Up to four. Up to four. And is it kind of like where like two people would play, you know, the, you know, pro women getting the vote and then two people would play the opposition, I guess? You essentially split a hand. And I've, when I've been teaching the game, have taught to like three and three where they just sort of play as a side. It takes a while because lots of ideas and discussion of strategies. Um, But the box says one to four players. And could you play it cooperatively? Like where three people are gaming and they only want to play the opposition or they only want to play the pro side? You can't play the opposition cooperatively. You can't play against suffrage. Got it. To win, um, you can play uh, against a suffrage bot. There is only an oppo bot, so you can play Got cooperatively it. against the oppo bot. Um, but if you want to uh, destroy women's rights, you got to like go to your state house to do that, and not in my game. Right, gotcha. So on that note, I mean, I I would love to see the comments that you've gotten because I mean, look, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Again, like as a teacher, this is like a no brainer game. Like this is the kind of game you bring right into the classroom, right? Yeah. Because I would surmise that when I'll take the, I'll think about this from a student lens, right? As they're reading the cards, they're just going to absorb so much information. And then you could literally drive future research just by playing the game, which mm-hmm. from the teacher standpoint is like, again, like a huge check mark for this game. But in the, in the mainstream, what kind of comments have you gotten? I mean, like, I, again, like, I don't see this as a bad thing, but I imagine, like, people sitting around, like, the Thanksgiving table playing this game and, like, 
wild debate breaking out or something, you know, just because of the nature of the game, you know? I mean, in general, I think people have been incredibly supportive. Here's a part of history that I don't know much about. And now coming away from the table, I know a lot more about. Right. I think, you know, there are comments about how the game pulls no punches around the racial divisions that existed in the country and in the movement because the movement existed within the country. Right. Um, and, you know, deep, um, you know, sort of effort into not sanitizing what is sort of incessant, unsanitizable, right? right? But while still respecting the work and a sort of what can we learn from this rather than a how do we condemn or say like tisk 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 they were bad, right? There is right. no good, there is no bad, there is what happened in history. Right. Um, and so there seems to be a respect and appreciation for that sort of a nuanced take on um, you know, this 70 year period. Right. I well, think there, go ahead. No, I'm, uh, no, I was just going to say like, what you're describing doesn't exist anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like in the sense of um, everything these days is so extreme that like uh, what you're doing is quite novel. I, I think maybe that would be the the right word. And that I think comes into play when people talk about how emotional they feel playing this game. And I did not expect that at all. Um, and especially how emotional they feel or their reaction to playing as opposition. Um, that there is something about the way the game is constructed where you are playing xenophobia or you are called to, um, you know, be white, you know, you play a card of white supremacy in the, the movement um, that it seems feels different than playing a Nazi in your average World War II game, right? That in World War II games, you're often sort of fighting over front lines and it's all very disassociated from oppression or from active resistance to rights, right? It's just, you can pretend that these are just, you know, squares that you're moving back and forth. And the votes for women creates a, um, uh, uh, okay. Sorry. Um, what's a, uh, need to be fed. Completely fine. <laughs> yeah, this is what engineer audio engineers are for, right? <laughs> yes, Audi um, Pandit is somewhere out there listening, and he's going to fix that. Don't worry, <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe it just make. I, I think it just makes the pod far more interesting. So it's a go ahead. Tori. It's real life, right? Uh, anyway, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So votes for women by asking you to play, and you know, opposition. I think is about asking you to think about you know, people who fight against social movements. And these aren't scary monsters in the dark and they aren't only men chomping on cigars, although there's a couple of, right, like back room kind of shady, right? It is women opposed. And people say like, oh, I had no, I just never even thought about how women would have opposed suffrage. It's like, well, if you've ever heard of Phyllis Schlafly or you've ever heard of, you know, like this is like a common phenomenon. And so many people are just dumbfounded by the reality of that. They won't, grapple with what it means. And I think that if you want to be in a movement, you should think about who your opposition is because it makes a difference in your strategy and in your tactics and ultimately in your success. And so the game asking people to, you know, to, to take a hold of playing against suffrage, to play pretend is, I think, 
part of learning and understanding and not allowing sort of cartoonish depictions of anti-rights-based groups because they are real. They have their own motivations. It's not just they're against their own self-interest. It's, you know, they have self-interest that don't align with yours or what you think theirs should be. And we don't do anyone any favors by pretending otherwise. And so pulling no punches on the suffrage side and being honest and accurate and not willing to sugarcoat or to mystify and shroud these dark forces, right? Like there was industries that opposed because it hurt their bottom line. And again, right? Like, so I hope all of that comes through. And I, my sense, you know, from people's comments and what I, the good and the bad that I read, um, online. Sometimes people are just mad that a, you know, a game with the title women is in it. And I can't do anything about those people. They get to be, um, mad. And that's okay. We, I, get, I get my feelings. They get their feelings. Um, but by and large, people have responded, I think, overwhelmingly positively to the theme, to the production, to the gameplay, and to this kind of emotional, like, I really wanted to win suffrage or, oh, my God, I beat up. Like, I've heard feel the worst winning this game as opposition. And right. so if you really like hate you losing, shower. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, which is, like I said, not what I expected. I just figured people would like play the game and like, yeah, I won or yeah, I lost. But it, the emotional resonance has been a lot higher than what I thought was even possible. Which is good. Ultimately, it right? Is, it is, it is. But look, if your game doesn't have any tension in it, it's probably not a very good game in general. You have but, to I mean, have people some of that. love to play like we're in a park and we're going on a hike. And what about the deer? Right. Like people really are seeking out titles that are like warm and fuzzy. And so it's been reassuring to me that there is an, the, an audience for hard thoughts and yeah. for where do I fall? Well, look, you know, I mean, I think that games are certainly an escape and it's like for a lot of people, right? And I'll, I'll be a, I'll be a little cutting right now for a second, right? But for a lot of people, particularly Americans, they'd far rather play a game about the deer or, you know, you know, sit in a park and play like shoots and ladders rather than actually think about this stain, right? That that that's on our history, right? It's far better to do the other, you know, so you know, and again, like I am, maybe I'm being a little too cutting, but I think there's a reality there, you know? I think some of the opposition to votes for women is also grounded in folks who seek escape. Um, and, you know, especially war gamers, right? There's this whole ongoing for decades conversation about what is a war game and who is a war gamer and all of this stuff, right? And there are certainly a generation of men who see wargaming as a thing they can do away from their families as it gets them to a big table for 16 hours and they can right like do those things and like that's if that's go do that right like um there certainly seems to be a reaction to um you know and then there are other people who see want their families to game with them and see votes for women as a title that maybe they're non-gaming inclined wife or daughters would be interested in because of the theme. And so, you know, I focus on the folks that seem to want to play votes for women with loved ones who aren't inclined to play Hitler games. Um, and I think that that's been an interesting part of the, um, the market for this game, not folks who see it as an escape, but as a way to bring folks they love into a hobby they love. And I really like that. Yeah, there's a nice inclusive inclusivity to to your game. Which, and by the way, you're right because I mean, having grown up as a as a war gamer in particular, and having gone to those kinds of conventions for years and years and years, 
um, like, I'll just be super blunt. Like, I would go there and not see a woman for four days. And frankly, you know, it's, you know, 98% white men, right? Which I'm not necessarily saying is bad per se, but it's just a reality of where yes. the hobby is. But it's really wargaming because if you look at a lot of the other uh, you know, gaming mediums or genres, you know, whether you're talking about board games or card games or role-playing games, you see far more different uh, folks at the table, you know? So if this, if your game can, can break some of that stigma um, again, like it's something I'd love to see. Kevin and I were just at origins in Columbus and it was a lovely time. And we were hosted um, by a war gaming channel that had great space and set up tables and right. Welcomed us into the, um, into their little corner. And there was like this amazing, uh, like, what is it? The Panzer game. They had these like tiny little tanks. And they're climbing over these tiny, it was amazing. There was like a whole um, computer simulation set up there. What, right. There's one game that they just, it takes like 70 hours and they were like the little tweezers and the little, right. Anyway, um, votes for women and um, shores, or I guess halls of Montezuma. Um, and then uh, somebody was a catastrophe games was there and they were playing Taylor Shuss's um, Stonewall uprising were the only time there was three titles were the only times women were in the area. Um, and so, you know, you can draw people in. It's not right. Like a disinclination against the, the mechanics or the, um, the, you know, the form of the game itself, you can draw people and women in, um, but you have to be intentional about it. And I think some people don't want to be right again, if they choose this as an escape and not as a, a hobby to share, then. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is like, um, the word that you just used, like the idea of being deliberate and intentional. Look, I ran um, my school's game club for years and years and years and years, and we played some of the most hardcore war games. Lots of girls played. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, 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 you know, again, w without getting too much into the weeds here, even though it's a completely appropriate place to talk about this, um, I think if that here, yeah, I'll just I'll just be very again, very be very blunt. I think if gaming companies were more deliberate and more inclusive, you would get far more um a far more diverse group of people playing war games if they actually tried to market it that way. That's my Agreed. take. So agree. Um so just switching gears for one second, Kevin, here's a question for you. What attracted this title? Um, votes for women. What it what what was attractive about this in terms of your company? Because we haven't really talked about Fort Circle games yet, so maybe it might be a good time to to kind of get into that a little bit. Sure. So, well, uh, this will be the boring part of the podcast. Um, uh -huh. So we, um, I think, kind of developed that we have four criteria when looking at a game and if we want to publish it and what we want to be publishing. And the first criteria is that it has to be historical. Like we're not going to be publishing games about dragons and elves. And that's just not of interest to what we're doing. We want the games to be accessible to new players. Um, I think that that is really an opportunity, not only to introduce new people into the hobby, but also kind of occupy a certain spot in the industry of being, yes, this is a nice entry point to wider, longer, harder games. Um, but at the same time, our kind of our third criteria is that we want these games to be challenging. So, you know, the Shores of Tripoli plays in 45 minutes. If you play it once or twice, you might say, oh, well, that's a pretty simple game when actually there's a lot of hidden 
kind of chess going on in there. And, uh, and so it's, it's always a challenge. And I think, I think we, we did a pretty good job of threading it with votes for women too. Um, that, that it's a game that is accessible, right? We can teach it to students. We can teach it to non-gamers or, you know, but people are interested in the history, but yet at the same time, there actually is a lot of complicated decision-making going on. And so it's both accessible, but yet it's challenging. And, and I think, I think that's a hard thing, hard balance to find, but I think Tori certainly found it with votes for women and, you know, that that's our goal. Um, and then last games need to be fun. Right. And if a game's not fun, you don't want to play it, then, you know, it's drudgery. So why bother? So that's sort of how we've been evaluating uh, what games we want to publish. And I think a little side note to that is that we're also looking for under game topics. So I looked at a really great design on D-Day. Uh, at least it was a great design because it was fun. It wasn't quite historical enough. And I was also like, what are we saying with this game that hasn't been said in any of the 60 or 80 or 100 other D-Day games? And so I'm like, I really like the design. I'm, I'll buy it. I'm, you know, I, I like the designer quite a bit, but I'm like, this just doesn't make sense for us. So, you know, a game like Votes for Women is, you know, is definitely the kind of game that we want to be publishing. And as you look forward, um, so I guess I'll just talk about kind of our publishing schedule. It sounds a little dull, but hopefully some of it will be interesting to your listeners. You know, I guarantee you, of- Kevin, it will be interesting. Remember, <laughs> right? right? Our, our people, so to speak, our gamer folk and teachers are the people listening to this podcast. So they will arguably want you to talk more about whatever it is that you're going to talk about. So All do right. not be shot. Go for it. No one is bored. I assure so, you. So the Shores of Tripoli was about the first Barbary War. It's also from the line of the Marine Corps hymn. And that game uh, is actually used at the U.S. Naval Academy. We've sent a ton of games to schools and it's used in schools. It's used in a, a law school in the Philippines about law of the sea. And it's usually, so it's got a lot of educational use, but it's fundamentally just a simple introductory war game. Um, and then Votes Foreman has obviously been a big hit for us. Um, a little side note. So it's almost out of its first printing so I think we have maybe a hundred games left on Amazon um, and I've already started the re- reprinting process, but we're also talking to the department of education about funding a grant to make the game available online for free to students or to schools or to anybody. I mean, we wouldn't just, we would allow anyone to play or at least if that's what the grant would let us do, we'll see. Um, and so that's a way to make, the game more accessible. We've already done that with the Shores of Tripoli, which was a little bit simpler of a game to program. And, you know, we had this massive tournament, 176 people participated, like it was a four week tournament and it was really exciting and people really got into it. So, um, so we just uh, finished a Kickstarter for a game called the Halls of Montezuma. It's a co-design between uh, myself and my friend Gilberto Lopez. It's on the Mexican-American War. It's the other part of the Marine Corps hymn. For those of you who aren't familiar, it's from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Um, and then we have a really wide range of games that are coming out on some really interesting topics. We have a game called First Monday in October that we're developing in partnership with the Supreme Court Historical Society on the history of the Supreme Court. It's fantastic. The game itself is done. We're still, it's in artwork right now. We have a game on the hunt for Blackbeard, which is actually a fascinating history. Um, we have a game on the night witches who were Russian female pilots during World War II who were fighting Nazis. 
we have a game on the peace treaty of 1905 between Russia and Japan, which was not exactly brokered, but kind of brought together by Teddy Roosevelt. It's why he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And, I, and why we have I, cherry trees in, the, in yes, Washington, D.C. Yes, and why we have Yes, and I, I actually, when I was pitched on that game, I was skeptical, and then I played it, and it was amazing. Um, Jason Matthews, who uh, we've referred to for Design Twilight Struggle in 1960, has actually two designs he's working on. One is the Treason Trial of Aaron Burr, and one is the abdication crisis of uh, Wallace Simpson and King Edward VIII in England. Um, so we just have like, oh, we have a game. Oh, actually, the game I'm most, yeah, 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 yeah. The game I'm most excited that I actually believe will be our bestseller uh, is a game on the history of the guano trade in the United States because the Guano Islands Act of 1856 was kind of the first kickoff into. Uh, legit imperialism by the United States where we were picking up all these islands in the Caribbean and in the South Pacific for bat guano or for bird guano, which was just the most amazing fertilizer. It was actually more valuable on a per pound basis than gold. And so, uh, so that game is just going to be fantastic. Um, oh, and we, and then there's a game on the history of Washington, D.C., although that one's probably going to be a couple years out because the designer is really putting a lot of effort into it. I mean, I love the dedication to the research that she's putting into it, but it's it's taken some time. So because that's a complicated story, telling the story of our nation's capital, uh, you know, in 90 minutes is is no small task. So no, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah. No, see, it, I, I this is the moment where I wish we actually did video and not just audio because for the audience, we're all smiling. And I think I'll say why I am, because I know based on all the titles you're talking about, you are going to absolutely fundamentally change teachers' lives if you do get that grant from the Department of Ed because students will devour these topics. Mm-hmm. And again, not to say for all my teacher friends out there, not to say that kids should only be basically taking on units that are gamified per se, but when you integrate some of these titles into a curriculum, kids are going to be excited to go to school and they're going to be excited to learn about all these topics. And I know that for a fact, because I'm a teacher and this is what I do. I mean, I have these kinds of conversations, like I should be inviting you to the next conference I run uh, to talk about some of these games, you know? Yeah. So Here's a question, Kevin. Um, the designers of these games, are these individuals that you already know or are these people that are reaching out to you as a publisher? So initially, well, my first publication, I wasn't sure if I was going to find another publisher or if I wanted to publish it myself. And what I found is, and this is no disrespect meant to any of the other wonderful publishers out there, but no one was going to put the love into the game that I would put into my own game. And that just became apparent to me. And so uh, as I started off, I just wanted to work with people I knew. So that's why I talked to Tori. That's why I talked to Jason Matthews, like people who are friends of mine, people who live here in D.C., um, later Volker Runke, uh, who's doing Game on a Blackbeard. Um, but as I became part of the gaming community, I would say that, you know, I, I got to know a lot more people. And so... Uh, two of the games that we've decided to publish, I actually saw at a convention that we host every April. Well, every April we've hosted it once, but that we will be hosting every April. Um, 
I got to take a look at the peace treaty game and I got to take a look at the night witches game. And, you know, these are people who came to my convention. It's kind of small, you know, a little over a hundred people deliberately kind of small. Um, and now like everyone I work with, I think of as a friend, right. Or because we have some same level of respect for the history. We have same, like, the people who are designing games for us tend to have a similar philosophy, right? We want the game to be accessible to new players, but yet challenge, like all those, you know, that laundry list of criteria that, that I listed out. And so I certainly am looking at designs uh, of, from people I don't know, but then I get to know them and usually I'll meet them at a convention. So, um, you know, Dan Bullock has a game that's really interesting that we're trying to find a way to publish, although we may not publish it. Um, uh, or at least not a sports circle. And, but I met him at a convention. Now I've met him at two conventions. That's great. Um, Alex Knight, who designed an amazing game on uh, the Spanish civil war has a game on John Brown that is fabulous. And you know, we haven't signed anything yet, but I feel really comfortable. We will probably be working together, but that's because I've met him at a couple conventions. And so, you know, you meet people, you kind of become friends. It's a small industry and you want to work with those people. And if they have great games, then you want to publish them. And, and on the flip side, I think that even though we've only published two games, you know, people are already talking about there's a fourth circle approach and there's a fourth circle way. And it is deep in the history and gorgeous with the pieces and not cutting any corners. And, uh, is so, you know, I think it's a, it's a nice partnership in that, we have a almost our pick of people we want designers we want to work with and that's just great. And so I'm hoping that the next couple of years are really uh, truly golden years for the firm. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like, you know, uh, being a musician kind of on the side, it's almost like you're describing like the best kind of record company that exists, like a record company that only brings in people that they're going to put their time into bring in people in which they really care about the music they're going to going to put out as opposed to just kind of getting something that's going to be a big seller or a big hit and then know nothing about the act. So it sounds like a really cool um, little enterprise you sort of have going on there, Kevin. Um, Let's hope it keeps going. (laughs) No, for sure. So um, kind of random. uh, So the Spanish Civil War. So tell me a little bit about that. Are you um, do you have a game like that? You're ready to kind of pull the trigger on for that time period. Reason I bring it up is because I teach a lot of different topics. Spanish Civil War is one of the most difficult to help students understand. So difficult. So the the Spanish Civil War game actually has already been published by Blue Panther. Oh, has it? Um, Okay. But that's a print-on-demand company. And so, um, well, I don't want to spill the beans yet or anything, but it's certainly a game that we would like to reprint with a little more deluxified version. I'll put it that way. It's called um, Land and Freedom by Alex yeah. Knight. Got it. So the, so the game is called Land and Freedom. It is, as Tori said, by Alex Knight. And it is a half-cooperative, half-competitive game um, where you are one of the three Republican factions, the communists, the socialists slash moderates, and the anarchists. And you are fighting the nationalists or the fascists, uh, but you're also in fighting each other to control the government and to get like, and so uh, it is, I would say, my favorite game of 2023. And, and 
that might not mean it. But David Thompson, who's also a ridiculously well-known game designer, also thinks it's his favorite game of 2023. I think it's just amazing. Uh, and so... Uh, well, you sold me. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah, I, I oh, haven't, I absolutely. hadn't heard of it before. So, because, like yeah. I said, yeah, everything that you're describing. I mean, you should imagine, like, uh, if I could put a little camera in my classroom when I'm, you know, teaching the Spanish Civil War and just watching kids' head spin as they're trying to like learn who all the different groups are and who was on whose side when. Um, it can be, it can be challenging. Also, sources I find are really hard to find, like appropriate sources for high school age students, because either you've got sources that are way too hard for them to understand, or you're sort of cookie cutter, like frankly, like uh, almost like shameful representation of what the conflict was about, like in a regular textbook, which is like a page long, you know. Yeah. So, now very cool. If you don't mind me asking, what Go for what grade level is and what's the class that's studying the Spanish Civil War? So no one ever asked me questions, Kevin. This is this is like a this is a first. Um okay, so I'll I'll go. I will I will answer that question. So um I teach a course at a school called Brunswick in Greenwich, Connecticut. It's an independent school. Um I I teach a course called Topics in the History of Warfare. So there's three Ooh. different, yeah, there are three different versions of it. So one covers the ancient and medieval world. One covers essentially the evolution and death of linear warfare from 1700 to 1900. And then there's a course um, basically going from about World War One up to the present as close as, close as I, I could get. So I do the Spanish Civil War in the modern course as kind of like a transitional period. It's kind of like showing them that World War II doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere, specifically when it comes to strategy and tactics. So again, like these are smart kids, but giving them that background on the Spanish Civil War is dizzying, you know, um, one of my favorite periods. But again, um, you know, for, for high school kids, it can be a little bit a little bit tough when you're trying to go beyond just like here's a cursory understanding of, uh, of what was going on there. You know, oh, then land and freedom would be fantastic for their class for the classroom. It's only three people. Yep. So you would, I don't know how big your classroom is. Of course, if that was online, then, you know, courtesy of a, some kind of grant, that would even be better. <laughs> gotcha. uh, so, um, because that's actually something I found is so, is like, it's hard to use games in a classroom when they're two player, three player, four player. It's just hard. Yeah, it I is. Mean, um, but that's why we were really happy with shows of Tripoli being online. And so we had all these teams of kids in this big tournament. I mean, we have lots of yeah. people so, from all walks of life, but I see, I like, I'll go back and play and I'll see some of those kids from this tournament that was a year and a half ago playing. And I'm like, yeah, I'll play them. Like I played one a week ago. And so it's just interesting to see that. that yeah. It's really adoring, actually adorable. So no, for sure. So there's, I personally use a lot of tips. Uh, sorry, I use a lot of tricks in the classroom. Um, where if a game is like, let's say, only three or four players, there's a couple of ways you can do it. I mean, theoretically, you could do like a a day where the students learn how to play, and then if you have enough copies of the game, they can kind of do it on their own. Um, there are other ways you can do it too, where instead of uh, one player equaling one person. You can have three people playing that one slot, which is actually really fun because then they have to, they get a chance to actually talk to each other about individual moves, you know, depending on what, what they're playing. There's also other ways you could do it too, where you might have 
three or four people playing, but everybody else in the room have other roles. Like you could have people be journalists who kind of have to take a uh, narrative of everything that's going on in the room. So there's a lot of different like teaching, you know, tricks that you can use, you know. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And I think I I forgot to say, um, yeah, my classes are pretty small, actually. I'm very lucky in that sense. Um, my my classes usually are around 18 students, which is, you know, different than the public system where, you know, you depending on where you are, you could have 30 or 40 kids in your room. So yeah. I think we saw there was a professor, yeah. um, IUPU, right? Like in um, Northwest Indiana, um, mm-hmm. that used votes for women in her class on uh, the progressive era, right? Mm-hmm. So it covers that sort of core piece. And I think, you know, that was also maybe a 12 person class and they split into six and you, you know, sort of team based kind of did the um, thing. And they seem to really like it. You know, she, it takes a little while to play. So it was over sort of multiple class periods and right. they'd come back in and she'd say, all right, you want me to, to start lecturing again or finish the game? And they'd be like, finish the game. Oh, of course. So that's always right. You're better than a class lecture. That's, you know, what more well, can you ask for? And here's what's funny, right? You know, again, now see, I'm the one being self-conscious about talking too much, but like, um, <laughs> the funny thing is, is, you know, and again, for listeners out there, they've heard me say this a million times. Um, if you have a really good game and you have great curriculum around it, you don't need to lecture. You don't need to have them sit there and be bored out of their minds, like waiting to leave to do whatever they need to to get out of that space, no matter how interesting the material is, right? Um, if you design a, a great game and you have some, some you know activities to go around it, they're going to learn. Not only are they going to learn what you intended through the lecture, they'll learn more because what they're going to do is they're going to go home. And they're going to look things up, which is, you know, what what all teachers want. So I've had some folks ask if there was a compendium for the cards in Votes for Women mm-hmm. that they essentially wanted, right? Like they wanted more about, yeah. you know, the person or the event. And, you know, there's 160 characters of event text, at the, you know, flavor text at the bottom. Like I, I've called it, you know, trying to write a history text, a textbook and a text message. It's just super tough. But like, no, I don't have just a full list or, you know, another book about that. But you can, right. if you're interested, go on. And one of the things I love most about Votes for Women, besides that it's like a super fun game to play that helps people think about movement politics and what's possible moving forward, are the historical reproductions that are in the box. And that when you open the box, it's not just like, you know, the instructions, the bits and the board. There's 12 or 13 historical reproductions that aren't, they are like related to content in the game, but have no no bearing on gameplay. And from a reproduction of Abigail Adams' letter to John Adams in 1776, advising him to remember the ladies, which he did not, to a voter registration card issued in 1920. Um, you know, it's this full range and there's telegrams and flyers and anti-suffrage postcards that were sent to the Senate, right? And I think you could do a whole, probably a whole unit on primary sources and on diving into each one of these documents and who was the author and who was the intended audience and what was going on at this time and, right, that these documents have so much potential for not just bringing contemporary, like first-person sources to life, but to how communication was happening in this era and how information was being relayed. Um, and it just really, I think, helps immerse players. And so we were, like we were talking about, it's sort of an emotional experience. I think part of that are all of these documents that help people feel like they are a part of what was happening because they can feel it in their hands. And um, it's just, it's a super nice, it's, it's a fort circle touch. It's not something that a lot of publishers do, but I wish more would. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny. And this will be one of my final points because I'm looking at the time. We've we've talked a lot, which is great. I feel like we could kind of probably keep going. Um, but you know, it's interesting. One of the things that has stood out to me so fo- so far about Fort Circle Games, just in general, is I think what differentiates this publishing company, right, Kevin, your publishing company. What what differentiates it from a lot of other companies is you have some companies out there that are driven by mechanics, and it's like it's all about the mechanics. All it's all about how the how the game works. Then you have some companies where it's all about profit, right? Like I, you know, I'm just putting whatever I can out there to 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 make a buck. You're driven by historical research, and again, like I've played a lot of games, and not to say that other companies don't have that as a big part of what they do, but it seems like it's it's really like probably the biggest driver of this company, which is um, really from a, the perspective of a history teacher is a really great thing. It's a little unusual. Well, the truth is I wanted to be a history teacher when I was in high school. So uh, my my career path diverted, but I think that's inherent sort of just in me. And so uh, that that's the approach we take for the firm. So, and hopefully it resonates. All right, well, look, Kevin. Big nerds I mean, making big games for big nerds. Yes, absolutely. And look, Kevin, I, will, I, I can help make your dream come true. You should definitely come visit my school uh, next school year and... We can do some work together, depending on what 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 your schedule looks like. Obviously, Tori, the same would go for you as oh, well. It really, oh, of course, because I, I think that um, I just have always thought that teaching and gaming kind of goes hand in hand. And yeah, again, given your modus operandi for the company, it's even more so that they go hand in hand. You know, so I guess here, uh, I don't know. I feel like just in the questions that we've talked about, I feel like I I have a good sense of where um fourth circle games is going in the future and kevin you got a chance to talk about a lot of like upcoming projects what if we uh ask tori you kind of the same question like so what are you up to i mean like are is 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 the big thing for you right now promoting the game and getting more people to see it are you working on some other things what can Uh, you divulge (laughs) all the top secret things yeah Um, absolutely so promotion has been amazing and time consuming. Um, you know, there are lots of folks that want to talk about the game. And so whether it's interviews, whether it's podcasts, YouTube shows, um, you know, if you want to talk about my game, I am happy to find some time to do that. And it's been really wonderful to sort of get to talk to so many people. Um, there's certainly some conferences, right? We're going to, um, we were at Origins, the San Diego History Con in uh, November, looking forward to some of these in-person appearances, both in, like I've done some lo- locally as well. So it's just been a lot. I also, while I was designing Votes for Women, um, it was like I mentioned the pandemic, I was also unemployed. So I had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And so that created this sort of like really, and I was also newly sober. So I had a lot of energy to put forward to things. And so it was a really magical alchemy <laughs> of like, unemployment, global catastrophe, and uh, sobriety that helped make Men of Votes for Women magic. Uh, I'm now working full-time at uh, the uh, America's Largest Labor Union. It keeps me pretty busy. I was just on the road um, for, and I will be going out next week as well. So it's just like, you know, my time, I don't just have, I don't have as much time as I used to, um, but I am like bitten. I am um, like my brain is different now that I've designed this game and how I play games and how I think about history. I just, all of these pieces, you know, they're, they're now pieces that fit together rather than sequence of events or personalities or stories. So it's like, I, I, I don't know if I can just 
not do another game. I think my brain will like keep forcing it upon me. So I've started some research. Um, like I said, I work for a labor union. The America's a labor history is storied and violent and inspiring and kind of crappy and um, corrupt and all that, right? All of these things, which make, I think, a really interesting narrative about how workers come together for increased power. And, you know, there's a sort of timeliness to that. Um, I'm also interested in um, the way that the environmental movement has factionalized. And um, I just got a copy of David Brinkley's uh, Silent Spring Revolution. It is like this big. Uh, if you can see, it's the size of my face. Like it is deep and, you know, about sort of from Rachel, Rachel Carson to the formation of the EPA. But I think that there's also some really interesting and timely storytelling about how these factions come together and break apart that, um, you know, just would make a really interesting game and who's gleaning clout and political, right, um, capital while, you know, Nixon is doing Nixon things and all these sort of other pieces. So, um, you know, I think for me, one of the draws of creating Votes for Women was about um, sort of reaching new audiences with movement history and encouraging folks to be involved no matter how big or small in efforts to make their community better and making America a more just and, and fair place. And that piece that's driven my career will also drive um, my my game design um, and future works. So I think this idea of, you know, telling movement stories through board games, you know, the suffragists got it. They made board games to make their storytelling more fun and to bring more people into the fold. I think there's a lot of potential for bringing new people and understanding that we, you know, people feel pretty powerless these days, but games are a place where you can practice and you can lose with little consequence and you can see interesting storylines develop. And so if my, you know, intersection, the intersection of my career and my gaming passions can help folks think about joining an organization or being a part of a movement, then that ultimately is like, I, I will, I will find the time. <laughs> I will make time because the potential, you know, I, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna change this world with tweets or threads or whatever comes next from these rich billionaires. We're gonna need, um, you know, to do it ourselves. And, yeah. and that's, you know, I think part of board gaming is a part of that. Yeah. So and, who knows? Yeah, no, and a great place to do that, right, is inside the classroom, you know? And if you, yes. can, if you can build a game that really gets, you know, kids thinking, whether it's about that particular topic or the skills that they take from having to play the game and then use those skills somewhere else, hopefully for good, yeah. Um, whatever you good can, might mean. <laughs> if you can play a game that shows you just how hard it is to pass a constitutional amendment, you won't be drawn in by the Gavin Newsom's of the world that use it as political stunts, right? Yeah. Like you will understand what it takes. And a little bit of um, critical thinking is always a good thing, I would think. No, absolutely. And and for you, Kevin, I, I like I said earlier, I feel like I have a good sense of where Fort Circle Games is going um, you know, in the future. But what about like you? Like, are you doing any designing or are you playing anything interesting at the moment? So I have a design that I am super excited about, but probably won't be ready for two or three years. Okay. Um, it is set right after, so it's set during the eight years of George Washington's presidency. And you play as Burr, Hamilton, Adams, Jefferson, Madison. Yeah, I think I got the five right. Um, and it is a mix between Dune Imperium and Republic of Rome. So you are all jockeying. Oh, Adams. I left out Adams. Uh, you are all jockeying to be the most prestigious, 
you know, founding father, farmer, father after George Washington. So you'll be the next president and you have to work together to pass legislation. You have to work together to deal with various crises that come up. But at the same time, you're trying to get the most credit for yourself. And so a way to use the those mechanisms that I love in Dune Imperium, um, but matching it to a historical setting in what I think is a really fascinating uh, time of, of, you know, the American Republic where, you know, it wasn't a guarantee that the Republic was going to continue for 200 and some years. So uh, that I think is pretty exciting. But other than that, um, I think I'm, while I'm an okay game designer, I'm a decent game designer. I think I'm a much better game publisher. And so I think that's where the bulk of my efforts will be to help talents like Tori, like some of these other designers that I'm working with and melding them with some of the amazing graphic designers that I know. And then maybe also extending these games onto an online environment as well. Like really trying to, you know, become a, you know, a force for educational good, which sounds a little bit uh, braggy, but might as well aim high. No, absolutely. And and you should feel, you know, don't feel, you're not braggy. Don't feel that way. Like, um, bottom line is like, it has been so nice having both of you on and without sounding unbelievably lame, you've given me a little bit of hope today, the two of you, oh. because again, I'm very serious about this. Like, I think that what you're both doing is wonderful and I, I really mean it. Like, if you can get that, 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 that grant, and if you could somehow tie yourself to the Department of Ed, which needs all the help that it can get in this country, I think that um, there could be a lot of, again, quote unquote, good things on the horizon, you know, for students and such. So, uh, and also, it was just really fun having you on. This was a really fun conversation. So, I appreciate that uh, you both took your time, time out of your day to come and do this. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. We really appreciated the opportunity. Yeah, of I course. know we're gonna do. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was. I think that was the only time we talked over each other, just saying goodbye to one another. So you know what? Not a bad thing. All right, everybody. So um, catch you later, and have a good day, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to today's twenty-sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is HMGS underscore NextGen underscore Inc. Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much. Thank you.